There are only two truly global sports. I'm probably going to get shot down for saying this. It's football and track and field. Why did you take so long to deal with the transgender issue? We didn't, actually. I walked out, there were about 20 people there. 15 of them were French police, two Interpol. Five hours later in a Monaco police station, I'm being told that my predecessor had been arrested that morning. There were conversations that coaches could have with athletes. Frank exchange of views. That were frank. Yeah. And now it's a very, very different. Uh, it's a very, very But that worries me. The athletes have now got used to the fact you want to step outside the rules, you're going to get caught. This is Upfront with me, Simon Jordan. I believe there are a lot of vacuous, uninformed, unchallenged opinions out there. I want to get to the bottom line and cut through the nonsense. So with this podcast with William Hill, I'm going to get people with strong views who think they can stand them up to proper scrutiny. There's a good chance I might learn something along the way. And more importantly, so might you. Joining me in today's episode, a man who led the way during a rich period of British dominance on the athletics track, summed up by sporting rivalries with Steve Ovitt and Steve Cram. He went on to capture two golds and two silver medals across consecutive Olympic Games. As he moved from athlete to administrator, he helped bring the world's greatest sporting event to London in 2012 and continues to lead world, world athletics as we head towards another Olympic year in Paris. Sebastian Coe, welcome to Upfront. Great to be on. One of the things that we do in this is discuss what creates somebody, what turns the Seb Coe of a young man that watches the 1968 Olympics mm -hmm. into this elite athlete and the journey that he goes on. So, it, as I say, it goes under this expression of what's your why? I've always thought we are all products of landscape, geography, neighbourhood, yeah. family, friends, where we get educated, if we get educated. And for me, I have a sort of quite an interesting background because my grandfather was Indian. Right. My mum was obviously half Indian. Um, you know, she'd wear a sari three days a week. I was born in London. My dad was from the East End. Right. Very, very poor background. I mean, he was born in one room on Cambridge Heath Road. And my mother came from a very different type of family. They were portrait painters and writers and novelists. So creative. They were the, they were creative, yeah. and and I and I was born in Hammersmith. Yeah. And then moved sled, st steadily through the Midlands and then the north of England, where you know my my old man was a uh, manufacturing engineer. How so old were you when you moved? I was uh, well. I moved out of London before I really remember it. Up right. through the Midlands, he sort of ran businesses there, and then we ended up he ended up managing a running a cutlery business in Sheffield. So sort of my I tend to think my formative years were in South Yorkshire mm -hmm. which was in itself an interesting yeah you know uh, culturally very different from London well yeah. if you yeah. were you were brought up in South in Sheffield in the mm. 70s and your name was Sebastian you either learned yeah. to run or to fight <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean it, it was a you know and I look back on that thinking that was fabulous because yeah. it gave me a, a view of a part of the world I probably wouldn't have really understood and I feel a Sort of, I do feel an affinity mm -hmm. with with the north. I ran for Yorkshire for for many years. So, the why I've always loved running. Yeah, I've always loved running. If my parents were still around, they'd have told you that from the age of two and a half, three, you know, I, I ran everywhere. We all talk about sport. You pick your sport. I don't think you pick your sport. I think your sport picks you. And for me, it was just the physical sensation of running. I loved running. Right. And the landscapes that I was lucky enough to be able to, to train in when it really mattered of were yeah. the Peak District and, you know, the fells yeah. and, and, and the valleys. And for me, landscape is, is really important. And it's a charitable description of what I now do, but I do still run. Mm -hmm. And that's my day. I, you know, it's, it's what makes me feel who I am. What, what, what drives you? I mean, I know you said that you like, you know, you wanted to run everywhere. Um, but to want to compete in athletics and to want to be an athlete from the outset, what what was it that set it alight? Was it something on television? Was it something that you saw in your peer well, group? Was it something that yeah. your background from your yeah. from your parents' side introduced it, into your thinking? It's a mix of all those things. Right. You know, we say it's a niche sport. It is and it isn't. I mean, we've had a world championships this year. It's the biggest global sporting event on the calendar. We've mm -hmm. had two hundred and eleven competing countries. Um. 
and and actually, if it's a niche sport, that is our fault. Mm-hmm. We could be, we can, and we will be doing more to make it more relatable. And the problem, I mean, you, you've touched on some really interesting themes here. One of the problems we've got is that it's a it's a hundred and fifty year old sport. <laughs> Most of the things that were familiar certainly in the 20s and 30s don't look a lot different now on the track so one of the challenges going forward is what does the product look like mm-hmm. how are people consuming it? you know from your media background sure. you know everybody's just absorbing stuff in a in a very different yeah. way so we've got to be a lot braver about how we we have fantastic assets more people run than in a in a participatory mm-hmm. fashion than do any other sport on the planet but the, so if, if I go back to the early days, we came through at a time when football was a really average product. Yeah, in the 70s. Yeah. 70s. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm older than you, yeah. but I was watching. The England team was falling apart. Yeah, you know, yeah Europe, you know, we had our problems outside, off the field, yeah, yeah, on the field. Yeah, yeah. You know, teams were being banned yeah. from Europe. So what was interesting was that Daly and Steve and Tessa suddenly started to come through. And it wasn't about just winning domestic stuff or occasionally getting lucky in a European championships. We were delivering world and Olympic champions and mm. stacked up against what was going on in football. Yep. Cricket was, I know you're a cricket fan, cricket yep. was very much in and out. Rugby, we were getting slaughtered mm-hmm. every time we played Tennis, against we didn't Wales. have much going on, did we? So in a way, um, how did I go from loving running i i w- was never a team player right um i used to play football rugby badly and occasionally cricket, but it it, uh, it used to f- it did frustrate me then and it would have increasingly frustrated me you know i just mm. i knew i i felt comfortable about failing yeah but i needed well, to on my know own terms yeah yeah i needed to know it was they yeah. were my shortcomings yeah. or the coaching team's shortcomings not because I'd done everything I possibly could, and I'd just watched five, six, ten years of work go down the what's it. Was it always part of your shtick or psyche that I'm going to be an Olympic champion? That's, my, that's where I'm going. I guess there was an element of that, but I don't, I don't think that's the whole story. I certainly didn't think that when I joined an athletics club that there was some destiny rolled right. out in front of me. The, the, the conversation that still puts... It didn't at the time, but looking back, it was quite a, a, a shock. As I remember coming off a rain-soaked training pitch, because we didn't actually have a track available in, in Sheffield that was really usable most times of the year. So we used to train, the house, the house we were in backed onto some university playing fields. So I used to train a lot on the university um, facilities. And my father, who was only really probably two years into coaching me and his mm-hmm. his introduction into the sport was an interesting and a funny one but i remember walking off this training pitch soaked through at about seven o'clock one night walking back up to the house and he just actually almost out of nowhere said <clears throat> by the way i want you to get used to a concept and i'm 14 i just barely knew what the word concept meant and he said, um, you're going to go to the Olympic Games. He said, I think you will be a world beater. And I just want you to start getting used to that concept because I'm guessing that for some it comes as a bit of a shock. So, you know, if if what I've got in mind comes to fruition, you'll be there in sort of 1980. So this what year is this? This is like, like 1972. So what were you then, 16? 15. Yeah. 15, yeah. And he said, I think that's, so I just want you to start getting used to that one. Well, you know, I wasn't thinking much beyond, you know, Sheffield Wednesday's next mm. home game and probably trying to, you know, get around a bit of homework. Did you feel that when you were younger that you were pushed and pushed hard and did you feel challenged by it? No, I, I never did. And interestingly, looking back, the thing that was actually so powerful was left to my own devices without a coach that was standing back. I would have probably done stuff at too early an age that would have 
certainly meant I wasn't still competing internationally at the age of 34. Right. But were you, did you feel that you were pushed? Were you no. pushed? No. Okay. No, because I, I, I wondered what you ever felt that. Though. No, because I wondered if you were, because of your father's background, because of breaking the orthodoxy and challenging yeah. the establishment, it would require a certain type of fortitude and outlook. Do, do you think that the resilience of athletes in this day and age is different than it was in your day and age? That's a great question. And I don't know. I don't know there's an easy answer to that. I don't think pressure in the sport comes from anything that is I tend to think it's internally generated mm, but then I'm probably speaking in any sport I think that's the same I'm probably only speaking for myself here culturally we've shifted and a lot of emphasis I suppose some of it even more so post-covid is about mental resilience yeah. and fortitude and overcoming things and I grew up with a father that was very much get on with it mentality. Yeah. He'd been a professional footballer. I'd signed for Chelsea, your team, when I was 14, 15. And my background was get on with it, overcome things. Things are things you have, you've got to overcome. Yeah. Um, and I wondered, without looking for you to be controversial, but I wondered if you looked into the world of athletics and with your experiences and the athletes that you competed against, the, the period of time that you were involved in and all the experiences that you have, are you seeing a different mental resilience in athletics than, than, than what you encountered when you were younger? Yeah, I, th there's no question that there is that. And I think there's a, a, a far greater willingness and openness to talk about some of those challenges that wasn't on the agenda when I was a, a competitor. If you're lucky and you have a great coach, most great coaches are pretty good psychologists. Mm -hmm. And will the great thing about coaching is, and my father was the first to admit this, he said, you need to know... You need to have all the technical ability to do it, but actually, fundamentally, you need to know more about the people you're working with than the, it's not just simply imparting, you know, how do you bend a ball into the back mm. of the net or, you know, what angle do you come into a high jump apron at? And it's, it's a great deal more than just simply imparting technical stuff. Uh, again, you know, you've got to, you have to choose your words carefully here, but. I, I just worry sometimes that we're, we've just flicked the pendulum a little bit mm. too far, that, you know, we, we openly talk about mental welfare, and that's important, you're right. And Indeed. that's been turbocharged yeah. mm. after, after COVID, and we know that there have been some, some big challenges, both in my sport and, and more broadly. But I, I hope that we don't lose sight of the fact that, that, that to make it to the very highest level, which is an honourable ambition, it's, it, it's not, you know, it, it's not a shameful thing to want to be the best. Indeed. But I think you've got a generation of coaches that are now having to coach under very, very difficult circumstances. The, the, how do you define to an athlete that, you know, there may be a weight issue here. You can't have those discussions anymore. I know there are there are many coaches who just say, look, it's coaching females is is a very, very complex challenge now, much more so than it's ever been. I think in many respects, it's brought out the best in a young generation of coaches. But I think of the kind of conversation. In what way? Making them I think more rounded? I think they've become more sensitive to these right. issues. I think it's probably made them better coaches. But you can't lose that rough edge. Mm. I mean, I had a lovely coach who worked in, my, in the backroom team that my dad managed from Haringey Athletic Club, good northeast Londoner, a guy called John Havell. He had a fruit and veg market. And I remember being at Haringey a few weeks before the... LA games and I'd had a really difficult build up and I'd fallen out with the media for all sorts of reasons and he watched me training with a group and he just walked over and he said to me I'm not sure that you're really focusing on what's coming up and I said well he said I said you know and he went no 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 he said it's really important he said he said I think maybe a little less of the sang froid and a little bit more of the fucking panic. <laughs> You're four weeks off an Olympic Games. Get your ass in gear. And I got, I, I absolutely got that. 
And then I also remember an exchange with an athlete who was very, very talented. And the guy came up to him and said, oh, I don't want to work with you anymore. It's a clash of personalities. And he went, he looked at him and said, yeah. He said, you've got all the clash and I've got all the personality. personality. Fuck off. <laughs> now, you know, I'm not saying that we want to revert to that. Mm. But, but there were balanced. conversations yeah. Yeah. that coaches could have with athletes. Frank exchange of views. That were frank. Yeah. And now it's a very, very different uh, it's a very, very But that worries landscape. me. I mean, I, I look, I think there are things in society that need to evolve and everything changes and every generation has a different viewpoint. People are talking about this particular generation as a generation that they're troubled by. But I think every generation looks at the previous generation and goes, well, I didn't do that and I wouldn't have done it this way. But I do worry about resilience in society. I do worry about the preparedness of people to be able to do what it takes to overcome adversity rather than disappear into a victim culture or a, prepare, or a propensity to find a reason why they can't well, achieve something. And also, I don't want to cheapen in a way, I'm going to probably get into trouble for saying this, I don't want to cheapen mental well-being because it is, it's thrown out a lot. I agree. And, you know, I've, I agree. one of my closest friends went through three years of deep, deep depression mm. I, I know what that is like to witness. Mercifully, myself, yeah. I haven't, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm lucky. I, you know, I've had my good days and bad days, but I know what that is about. I was talking to Alistair Campbell not long ago. Yeah. And we yeah, were he both, suffers from that, doesn't he? We were both yeah. agreeing about that. Yeah. Now, I think it's great that we feel more, with a greater level of permission to talk yeah. about it. And awareness, but, of course, but, as a result I, of it. I, I, I don't want it to become almost the default position. You are going to have better days in the office than yeah. than not, and yeah. you're going to have worse days in the office, and it's got to be about navigating yeah. that, managing your way through that, and where there are mental, you know, we we, we know from cricket, we know from some sports, yeah. there've been some really yeah. well, profound cases. Well, we've and, seen Marcus Triscothic, and we've seen Jonathan Trump, and that's what you focus yeah. on. Yeah, I don't want what they've been through. To, to have a to, sort of linguistic... Yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't want yeah. that currency to be devalued. No, I agree. You know, for me as well, one of my close friends was Terry Hall, the late, late great singer of the specials, who yeah. suffered from clinical depression. Yeah. And when you've seen it, sometimes people are suffering from a circumstance in life, like a relationship is broken up, or they haven't got what they want. And I worry that then that becomes a mental, a mental an obligation upon mental well-being and health, rather than a preparedness to overcome adversity in that moment yeah and i feel that sometimes we disappear into it actually if you look at the paralympic games yeah and you look at what many of those competitors the challenges they have to overcome they've overcome either from mm. birth or yeah. through to that traumatic moment yeah. where they've lost control of a motorbike or something yeah. and you know, two years later, and some of us don't know we're born. Two years later, they're you know weightlifting oh, and for Team absolutely, GB. Absolutely, and I I think that is a you know, and they've been through some extraordinary moments. But I think that in many respects is a template that we've not properly mm. tapped mm. Uh, across sport. And mm. some of those stories are, I mean, they're jaw dropping. Indeed, indeed. I'm going to move you on to one of the. Key facets that people will associate with you, not the only one, but one of them, which is your achievements and your rivalry and the, the nature of the um, circumstances between yourself and Steve Ovetz. Do you think having Ovetz around yes. have made you better? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I wouldn't have admitted it at the time. No. But no question. Why? <clears throat> because, Why wouldn't you admit it at the time? Because... It, I got the question all the time yeah. and I used to come out. You're not going to give him any credence? No, I wouldn't. No, it wasn't even that. I just, we all came, we both came out with the the, the sort of pat, no, well, we only worry about, you know, each, <laughs> every game at a time. We only worry about what we're doing. Oh, delusional. Of course we were. We were always thinking You were about, mindful of the other. Yeah. I remember being on 79, 80 Christmas Day, I went out at a 13-mile run, effectively uphill, and I remember sitting, <laughs> sitting down for Christmas lunch and feeling vaguely uneasy during the afternoon. And halfway through the, uh, the 900 and running the damn busters or something. And I remember <laughs> thinking, the bulge, yeah. I bet you anything he's out doing a second training session. <laughs> and I sort of obsessionally went upstairs, put my kit back on and ran another five or six miles. 
and in a rare moment of candor, said to him, Steve, I'm going to admit something to you about what I did on Christmas Day in the lead up to the games. And he sort of smiled and then looked at me and said, did you only go out twice that day? <laughs> 30 something years later. So, yeah, of course, he was a huge figure in my mm. career. Who do you think was the better between you and him? Well, in the 800 in Moscow, immeasurably him because he was mentally tougher. Mm. Uh, he gripped the race and he had more experience. And I had only myself to blame. But I take nothing away from him. You don't get lucky and win an Olympic title. Mm. I then had two or three days to regroup, look into the abyss. And I always remember thinking, right, you haven't done what you've done for the last 10 years to go home empty handed here. So for the 1500 meters, I the only thing that drove me was it wasn't really whether I won on the day, although clearly I wanted to. It was I never wanted to walk off a track feeling so that I'd so fallen below what I mm. knew I was capable. I was a world record holder. Mm. I'd run three seconds slower, and I was—I'm just—I always smile at this story because after the 800, everybody had a view about what I needed to do in the mm. 1500 meters, and it was in the old days where journalists could actually walk effectively walked into the village. So after the 800, yeah, and I had an absolutely nightmare press conference. You know, it was just—you know—I was. I think the lead on the front page of News of the World the following day was a photograph of me running. It was Coe's Trail of Shame. It was a silver medal. Right. Mm. And that, not, that didn't really bother me that much. But, you know, I sort of had to regroup. And a whole group of journalists sitting there, and some of them were saying, you've got to run from the front. Others saying, you know, you fight, you've got to... They really wanted me to, mm. to do well. And my old man sat there very patiently watching this. And he started life as a mathematician. So numbers, he couldn't understand anybody that didn't get numbers. And he sat there, and halfway through, <laughs> through these journos imparting all the, the, you know, their advice. Particular brands of wisdom, yeah. He pulled out an old piece of paper, which you always travel with, an old propelling pencil. And it, it was like watching a sort of electric stenographer. All these numbers were flying around the page, like that. And then after about three or four minutes, he stuck the thing in his pocket and then he went right thank you um i just need time with my athlete never referred to me as his son it was always my athlete and when they disappeared he looked at me and he pulled this paper out and he went you know this isn't complicated looking at all these numbers he said given the number of mistakes you made uh, over the distance that you made them and the frequency with which you made them. There was only one outcome. He you said, weren't going to win. He said, it is well nigh statistically impossible for you to fuck up that badly again in the <laughs> okay. next decade. <laughs> and that, Simon, I swear to God, that was the only team talk that I had. And the rest of it, he looked at me and he said, you know enough. And the night before the 800 meter final, I, it was unusual. I can sleep. If, you, if I said I wanted to go to sleep, I could lie on that floor and probably be asleep in three minutes. It's just one of those things I can do. I didn't sleep that night. And when I got down into the Olympic Village, the restaurant the following morning, uh, I remember dropping the milk and I was just... <clears throat> and I remember, and he said to me, I didn't know whether to say something at that moment and introduce maybe something into your head that may not have been there. Right. Or actually to say something um, and, you know, risk that or say nothing. And I talked to Eddie Jones about that. And Eddie Jones said, your father has picked up on probably the most complicated coaching scenario. When do you say something and when don't you say something? And to his dying day, he will always say to me, the only regret he ever had in his career, Made a judgment other, call other than I didn't win the Tour de France, was he was a cyclist, was that I should have said something. And maybe we could have teased out the night before. Mm. I'm not sure, actually, it would have still been enough to have beaten Steve. Because Eddie Jones day. talks about, I spoke to Eddie, he's been on this, and spoke yeah. about that that high that he took the athletes to in the semi-final. Yeah. And he needed to have brought them down. And his yeah. reflection upon that was, is I needed to have taken a different approach during that build-up to the final and took them down a level 
um, because they were too high and they weren't going to be able to get back to that high. So I needed to reduce them down to get back up to yeah. that high again. Yeah. So that's what his thought process on that. And yeah. your father's... Well, it was the reverse. Yeah. Because he had yeah. to, you know, <clears throat> you we up. both had to... Mm. We both had to pick ourselves up, and then, you know, the fifteen hundred was a, as a. How close were you not, to not go to that? I mean, obviously, we talk about the Moscow Olympics yeah. and the boycotting of it, and I, I'm aware, through the research that I've done, that you were there was pressure being put on you, mm. uh, political pressure, which a is lot. an interesting one, and we'll get onto that in terms of your role in certain yeah. things that are going on at this moment in time. But how close were you not to not going and being part of a boycott? I think quite close. Um, and I, I'm eternally indebted. Why? You're very single-minded. Yes. So, But, I mean, if you think about what happened, I mean, we were all sailing along into Christmas of 79. Russia walks into Afghanistan. I was studying effectively economics and international at, at university. And I sort of looked at this and thought, oh, this is, this is inevitably going to have a knock-on effect. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it started. Margaret had only been prime minister for a short period of time. She was very into building back the special relationship she felt had, With the US, of, yeah. that had dissipated a bit under the yeah. previous government. Uh, and when <clears throat> Jimmy Carter announced the boycott, I just sensed, well, it was, it was only a matter of days before she came in behind it. And then it started. Uh, and it was a very divisive argument in the UK. You know, there were those that thought we should go. There were those that thought we shouldn't. And <clears throat> there was a real, really good guy who chaired the British Olympic Association at the time, Dennis Follows, who'd also got a background in football too. Right. And he was absolutely unreconstructed. He said, no. He said, it isn't for government to decide, you know, where we go. It's for sport. And he struck a really independent posture. It was also helpful. Do you agree with that? I did. Yeah. And it, and you agree it, with it now? Yes. And it was also really important that he made, and looking back, it was fortuitous. British Olympic Association, I've chaired the British Olympic Association. Mm. It's never been in receipt of a penny of taxpayers' money. Uh, and that allowed us to be very independent. Mm. And he said, no, um, it's for us to decide. And then sensibly, he said, we're going, but we will not have, we'll not take part in the opening ceremony. We won't, um, you know, we won't have national anthems. When I, when I got my, when I was on the rostrum, it was the Olympic Athens, mm -hmm. no union flags. And so <clears throat> he navigated it pretty sensibly. And I think by the time we went, most of the population were actually behind it. Some of the, you know, some of the right-wing newspapers mm -hmm. took a, a, a different view. My father actually got invited in to see a young foreign office minister. And he went and the guy said to him in no uncertain terms. Douglas Hurd, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was Douglas Hurd who went on to be foreign secretary. Interesting, I became his wit when I was in government. <laughs> okay. I reminded him of this exchange. It's actually in the 30-year papers that my father went in. Right. And he said to, literally they said, would you, you know, can you quiet him down? Because, you know, he's, he's running quite a good campaign here. And he went, my father looked at him, and he was pretty contemptuous of politicians. He said... He's just done a degree in economics and history. I think he can probably figure this out for himself. And the exchange is actually <laughs> the exchange is 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 on the on the record. And so there was a lot of pressure. And then young athletes were sent sort of photographs of mutilated yeah. Afghan kids. Yeah. It it got really unpleasant. And actually one newspaper made up a complete story about me in Oslo at an athletics event where I was supposed to, that night in the hotel, have been drunk and disorderly and throwing food around, complete. And it was a part, and it was, you know, part of a, 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 you know, an attempted... Discrediting. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. But you guys, John Walker wasn't there. There were other athletes that weren't there. Did you receive, was it an opportunity that was taken by you guys to, to dominate and might have been different if those guys. I, I had think been in there. some events, yes. I don't think it made a whole heap of difference in mine because actually the Americans at that time were Steve not, Scott. Yeah, yeah, Steve was really next generation. Right. It wasn't. They weren't dominant. 
the, the, the dominant forces in middle distance at that stage, Africa were beginning to emerge, mm -hmm. but indi in individual athletes, not the strength and depth that we have now. Um, no, I didn't have to look much further my own shores. What was, I mean, what was your, prefer, your, your preferred race? Was it the 800 metres or was it, was it the 1500? I, I actually preferred to run the 800, yeah. although I didn't, I won two titles, but not an Olympic title yeah. at it. 1500 is what I tend to get remembered mm. for because of the, yeah. but I actually think I was probably on balance a better 800 meter runner than a 1500 right. meter. It suited me. I liked inflicting pain in a race and I could do that at eight more than I could do at 15. Right. The 800 is the toughest event on the track. It is the most complicated. Right. I would say that, wouldn't I? But it's the only race outside of relays that starts in lanes. After 100 meters, you then have to converge. So if you're in lane eight or nine, you've got to be knowing what's going on way, way behind. If you're in lane one or two, you don't want everybody piling in on you. And and you're running world-class pace. You're running an average of 19, 20 miles an hour the whole way. You can only absorb about 20% of the oxygen you need. It's like high-speed chess. Mm. You're per, it's like being on the M25 on a Friday night. You're watching for brake lights. And you have always to think, at, at that speed, what is my exit route here? If the athlete three ahead decides to go in or out, how do I go? Do I have to go to the back of the field? Or... And so I think it demands more skills and more specific disciplines than right. any other event because you need to be, you need to have the leg speed now of a good world-class 400 meter runner. You need to be able to do your mileage, your 10, your 15 miles on the road and I think it's 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 the toughest amalgam. You can make mistakes at the 15. I've made them and bounce back. Yeah. You make one mistake at you're 800 yeah. metres, you're out of the yeah. back door. Do you value your silvers? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I it's mean, Ben I'm... Whitaker famously this year uh, in the last so in the last Olympics, uh, the boxer who will be a, a remarkable talent as a professional. Yeah. I'm watching. Did ha had no regard for his silver. Pretty much threw it away. And I wondered, given that you, you know in '84 you go again. You win a gold again in the 1500, but again, you get a silver in the 800. And I just wondered if you... <laughs> I probably have the luxury of valuing them more because I got the golds yeah. than had they just yeah. been sitting out there as the sum total of my career. And mm. I realise I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky to do that. I want to move you on to the Olympics and your new roles in life. Now, moving off from mm. being an athlete, still maintaining the fact that you were a runner in yep. life. Um, I won't let you forget that. No, nope, neither should you. Um, but I want to talk about the, the, the sort of the legacy of the Olympics and their relevance in this day and age. You know, obviously now you're you're the president of World Athletics, formerly the IAAF, but now I think more appropriately titled World Athletics. Yeah. How would you assess the state of play and the health of the Games? We're coming into another Olympic year in Paris next year. What's your overall view of the state of play? I think the state of athletics is strong it's never been stronger we've got more young talent coming right. through our world championships were exceptional this year and people you know for a few weeks people were talking about us not football i mean we know that's a that is a sort of magnesium flair mm. but you make the very most of it i think the olympic games is going to have to look very closely at itself and i think it's inevitable it's going to have to re-engineer itself there are a lot of sports that are going to have to look at themselves, look at their broadcast relationships mm -hmm. and do things differently and around governances as well. Mm -hmm. Look, my, my, my period at World Athletics was, you know, when I started, I'd been campaigning for a year and a half to get the job. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in my office, I'd only been in the office two days and my receptionist walked in and he said, um, there are some people to see you in the in the reception. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, thinking, well, there's a Monegasque, you know, courtesy, maybe a piece of cake and some champagne. And I walked out, there were about 20 people there. 15 of them were French police, head of Monaco police, two Interpol, and a guy who introduced himself as Judge Renaud van Renbeck. Mm -hmm. who said he was the uh, chief prosecuting judge in France for cross-border corruption. Right. Five hours later in a Monaco police station, I'm being told that my predecessor had been arrested that morning arriving in Paris. Yeah, yeah. His son was on the run. They had a testing anti-doping 
was arrested. The legal counsel had been arrested. <clears throat> and I'd received a message a couple of days earlier, which I thought was a tad bizarre, from my CEO announced he was going backpacking in Australia. So it wasn't the opening paragraph of an obviously happy ending, mm. but it did give me the opportunity to then take a flamethrower to the organisation. I was going to say, I mean, what did you inherit? Because Very you, little. Yeah, I mean... Select committees. Yeah. <laughs> interview, but, I mean, it was a pretty what is torrid it? time. What is it, Seb, about these organisations that, that seem to draw corruption and bad practice and challenges when they're supposed to be representing sports. We've seen it with FIFA. We've seen it with UEFA. We, we now, we've now seen this with DIAC and the challenges around the Russian doping mm. and mm. illicit payments. Mm. What, what is it about these organisations that are allowing or, or creating this opportunity? Look, you're right. And we, we do need to discuss this. But I guess if I were to make a case for the defence here, I would say, and and I think you'd agree with me, the challenge sport has, of course, is that look, you've got a business background. Mm -hmm. You're one of a few people that would probably wade through a 40-paragraph investigative piece about the management of a business or an institution in a Sunday newspaper. Mm -hmm. Most people don't because they don't really understand the nuances and it's not within their framework of mm -hmm. reference if it has sport attached to it they recognize the names they recognize the sport and they'll plow on into the article now i'm not remotely condoning the lack of governances that most sports until relatively recently i mean you're the vice president and from 2007 yeah, onwards yeah, and it's a good question it's like me being a managing director yeah and my and my finance director yeah is not aware of some of the issues yeah. financially that are going on, that would be almost like, well, hang on. You're but the Simon, director. you're putting that in a business context right. and you would have every justification for asking that. But remember, in sport, you didn't, we didn't have those structures. You have an executive, you know, you, you're a vice president. You probably meet four times a year. Right. So, and, and then you've got the challenge of questions that you may or may not be asking as an ordinary board member if you get a yes or a no, you can't, there's no framework by which you can say, well, how do I, I know well, that's the case. Mm -hmm. So in simple terms, in, in, in the, what was the IAAF, you had too much power residing in the hands of too few people right. and no way of being able to cross-index mm -hmm. the veracity uh, of, of the answers that you were given. So when I took the role, there were three questions I asked myself. The first was, how do we make decisions that are clear and transparent mm -hmm. so that the... And have accountability. That have the, the chair of the athletics club in Croydon knows that when my council makes a decision, why we've made mm -hmm. it, the way the decision is, is relayed, you've got to cut the undergrowth out and let them be able to see what, why you've made that judgment. The second question, and it's a tougher one, and sport is going to have to ask it, and we did, is who the hell do you want in your sport? What are their motivations? Yeah. What, what is the integrity here? And then you have to ask yourself a third question, which you can't really answer until you've dealt with the first two, which is, well, how do you then grow the sport? How, do it, how does it remain salient, interesting, relevant in the lifestyles of young people? Mm -hmm. So... We rewrote the constitution. We created something called the Athletic Integrity Unit. I've seen that, yeah. And that took away, that made entirely independent and anonymous testing. Mm -hmm. So never again would we have a federation that was able to put political pressure on a group of people at the headquarters to either slow down a process. We took all that out. So, Simon, at this very moment, I would probably be only given six, seven hours notice as president of the sport if they ban a big name athlete. Right. I wouldn't begin to know what they're doing. They're in a separate unit. I can't even walk into that unit. Right. We have a good working relationship, but it's independent. And it really and so athletics has now and the athletes have now got used to the fact it doesn't really matter about the size of your federation or the geopolitical situation or even reputation. 
you want to step outside the rules, you're going to get caught. Yeah. And you're going to get treated, if you're American or British, you're going to get treated in exactly the way the how athlete are from you? Cook I mean, Islands is going to get how treated. How worried are you about doping in your sports? I mean, I saw the statistics of 2,779 tests and 304, I think I'm right, and perhaps correct me if I'm wrong, with 349 athletes uh, having adverse findings, which in the plainest speak to me says 12% of tests are coming up with ad adverse findings. We're seeing it. I, I see it in other sports. I see the ridiculous approach in this country, say to the boxing industry with the UCAD, um, not having the resources to test properly yet being the governing body. You seem to have tackled that head on yeah. as one of your sort of core cornerstones of your manifesto and, and, and ideals about where your sport should be going. It had to be. Does it worry you? Do you feel that? I mean, we talk about. I talked to boxing for, uh, yeah. boxers and the British Boxing Board of Control, and they believe that it, that doping is rife in their sports. Yeah. What do you feel about your sports? <clears throat> I feel we're in much safer territory. Will we ever get to the utopia of uh, of, a, of a of a sport that is drug free? One hundred percent clean. Yeah. No, of no. course not, because it's human nature. Again, you you need to choose your words carefully here, but. If you're a street kid in some countries, the risk reward is huge. Mm. And if and if you get caught and you're returned to the street, sadly, that's probably not as nothing big. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, you've got the challenges because when you're putting education programs together in a, in a sport that is true, there are only two truly global sports. I'm probably going to get shot down for saying this. It's football and track and field. They are the two true global sports. They're done everywhere. Yeah, fair enough. And it's yeah. the universal yeah. language. But we, I think we're in much better territory. We now have the systems in place. And look, I'd, I would rather not have to spend eight million a year mm -hmm. on an integrity unit doing this. But I also know. But it is know, what it is. It is. I would rather have the short-term embarrassment of a, of a test that is a positive test and even maybe a high profile test, then I'd have the genteel decline into the morality of the knackers mm. yard where, mm. you know, it's, it's, you lose control. And I, what I don't want, uh, for me, I never want, I didn't want my sport to end up like WWF or whatever mm. it's called, where everybody knows it's fake and worse than that, nobody cares. While people are saying, they have a problem with it. I know we're still on the right side of that moral What do you make bandit. of this fellow this, um, D'Souza suggesting the enhanced games, making a case for it? I mean, I've had him on talking on him show and I, I wanted to shoot him down in flames and you find yourself listening to him and you find yourself going, well, I, I abhor the idea, but there's something about it that kind of makes some perverse, horrific sense. I don't think it does, and I'm not sure I really particularly want to go down that road. Give it any but, credence? Well, no, because nobody in my sport takes that seriously. And the athletes are now, and I speak to them regularly, we've just had our Athlete of the Year award, so I've sat, I've sat down with all our winners this year for two or three days. And first of all, they have a great deal more confidence in the system. Secondly, they want to be in an environment. And for me... You know, weeding out the cheats isn't just because I feel good that we've we've caught a cheat. For me, it's actually about protecting the clean athletes. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of athletes and coaches want to do it with integrity. And they don't want to sit there thinking, well, everything I'm doing is probably going to come to nothing because well, there's his, a, his there argument are, is there are a it? better set of chemists in lane five yeah. than, than in the lane I'm in. Well, his argument of, as, as, as enhanced games is that it is rife in the sport. Well, it isn't, and that's your, and that, your pushback would be that, and that athletes aren't tested, so it gives them actually more level playing field than the current one that we're on. And the athletes are tested, and they're tested all the time. Mm. So I can tell you that no athlete went to the World Championships in the testing pool in Budapest that wasn't tested at least three times, right. four times. In Out the, of competition. In, well, and in the, in the four months lead up to it. Yeah. How damaging was... Alberto Salazar. It was a bad story. And look, I'm, I'm not going to be mealy-mouthed about this. Mm. Alberto's a friend of mine. I've known him for years. We competed at the same time. 
I've known Alberto. He's a coach who's like a lot of coaches, is a bit crazy. I'd, the honest answer it's to that, Simon, though, isn't it? I don't know. We could have done without it. And I know it's, it's you know, it, there's not a lot left in his life. Mm. Disappointing though, isn't it? All those stories are mm. disappointing. Of course they are. Can I ask you, Sip, why, why you thought it wasn't a conflict of interest for you to be a Nike ambassador and yet be a very influential, first of all, a vice president at the IAAF and then the president of the IAAF, which is now World Athletics. Why, why did you feel it wasn't a conflict? Because it feels to me like it most likely is. I don't think it was a conflict, but that's always going to be a nuanced discussion. Look, my history is a pretty clear one. I was the first Nike athlete to win a global title or win a global medal in their shoes. Mm -hmm. I was with them from 1978 onwards. Uh, I'd even been on the advisory board for a few years. I'd taken on roles and responsibilities. Phil Knight, the owner. But the optics set. Yeah, I, 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 I know opti optics that. is shit. I know but, that sometimes we but, look at the world through optics and but, say, come on, it's yeah. through a looking glass. No, no, you're right. And I guess the other element for me in all that is during the London years, I still had that same role and responsibility. Adidas became our partners. The legal global counsel came into me one day and she said, we've now got the RFP out there for uh, the, the kit sponsorship. Mm. She said, you will exit every meeting where this is discussed. Six months later, I'd even forgotten. Nike never discussed it with me. She never discussed it with me. And she walked in and she said, by the way, last night we signed with Adidas. So I guess I was in an environment for seven years in the games, which was completely controlled. I was never involved in any of the negotiations. It was very clear cut. Yes, you're right. I probably should have seen going forward, but having been through that for seven years with nobody making any observations mm. at all. But you're stepping up to the big seat now, weren't you? Well, I'm not sure it's bigger than chairing an organizing committee for an Olympic Games. Okay. And for seven years, there was not a word. Nobody even mentioned it. You're right. I probably should have seen that going to World Athletics and the linkage between a company that was so synonymous mm -hmm. with athletics, I should have got. But I made. I was very clear that I was going to. Re I had to review everything I did when I got the World Athletics job, and I stepped down. I got the job in September. I was off the board at Nike by and the ambassadorial role at the end of October. Mm. You mentioned. 2012 or you touched upon it um how do you look back on that i mean did it fulfill i mean you get you get various reports that you? you talk <coughs> about the cost implications of it it was originally budgeted at 2.4 billion ended up costing 8 billion which is often the case when you get government involved in certain things and you know the building of the Olymp of the uh, wembley stadium was originally forecast at 200 million ended up at 757 million the operating budget for the olympic games never altered right and I was responsible for that. Okay. The infrastructure budget was an entirely separate budget. So that's the moving faces. It's it? the one thing that people f overlook. The organizing committee is a private business. Uh, when we became the organizing committee, the first job I had with the CEO was going to Barclays and taking an overdraft of about 50 million to create the business. There's not a penny of government money goes into the operational budget, which was what I was responsible for. That's the local organizing committee. And that budget was 2.34, it never altered, never moved. The problem is that if you really want to conflate everything, which is in accounting terms, just ridiculous, you then throw in the infrastructural budget. Infrastructural budget never altered, it was seven and bits. Uh, two point something on top for contingency. Government always throws in a lot of contingency. Yeah. And, and that came in on time and slightly under budget. So actually, and this is your big challenge, people then throw the two budgets together, which is crazy. So in a way, what happened, and it's, it was an easily sort of a bit tabloidy, if you really wanted to say this thing, the whole thing was out of control, you took the operating operating budget, you threw it into the infrastructural budget, 
and you said, well, it's all become, it's yeah. gone from two point something. There were two different budgets. To, uh, two entirely separate budgets. But also, there's, I mean, the flip side of the economic benefit is that it's been reported that the benefits are up to 14 billion and far ahead of cycles in previous Olympics. And they were, actually. Mm. So I don't think we got everything right. I think if you look at the impact that it had on elite sport was dramatic. We were the first city or first country to get more medals in the next away games in Rio yeah. than we got in London. Do you, do you look at the infrastructure, putting aside it was a separate budget, are you disappointed to see that the infrastructure, say, for example, what I call the taxpayer stadium, West Ham Stadium, <laughs> um, and look at that and say, well, that, they're, they're going to they're phase athletics out of that stadium. And that wasn't... We don't know that for sure yet. Well, the likelihood is... Well, we don't so. know that for sure. But look, what, I, what would I say? Look, the, the principle at a Games is simple. If you can't... If you haven't got a legacy tenant and a really sensible plan going forward, do not build permanently. Mm. We didn't have a 50-metre swimming pool in London. I mean, you've probably got six or seven in Paris. Mm -hmm. We had a 50-metre swimming pool that was slightly shy of 50 metres at Crystal Palace. You know, we were a nation of cyclists, and we'd done what we'd done historically. We didn't have a covered velodrome in London. So if you look at the Olympic Park, we only actually built what we didn't have. And to think that we weren't able to stage a major track and field championship because we didn't have a stadium. So... Those facilities, I don't think were, you know, they weren't a surplus to requirement. We never had them in London. In fact, London, you're a Londoner. Mm -hmm. Londoner, London as a sports city was singularly badly served for those types of facilities. Mm -hmm. Then if you can't build permanently because you haven't got a legacy tenant, then build temporary. I mean, everybody said, oh, I had to build a, a, a permanent um, water polo venue and I said look in the best will in the world I'm sure people will get into water polo for a few days yeah, but in London, but that, yeah. we're not going to become a nation of water polo players no we're mm. not so we built we built perm we built temporary and where where we were able to use existing venues like Wembley and and the O2 then then use those and that actually again was pretty much a template mm. for for what's now uh, accepted normally. We did it in 1948, of course, in London, because we got no money for yeah. different circumstances. Yeah. And, you know, people were in Nissan huts in Richmond Park. Yeah. I want to talk to you about this current landscape with Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. And the recent IOC announcement um, that Russian and Belarusian athletes who've qualified for the 24 Olympics will be allowed to participate as neutrals. Do you agree with that premise? And the honest answer is, is, is no, although I respect international federations for making individual judgments. Look, I, I can't have it both ways. You know, I, I'm a great believer that sport needs to be independent and mm. autonomous and you make judgments that you think are in the best interest of your sport. So uh, not every international federation has taken that view. We took a different view. Um, and remember, we, Russia was suspended from 2015 for yeah, doping. For doping, yeah. And we looked at the landscape when Russia walked into Ukraine. And for us, it was about the integrity of competition. Mm -hmm. And I just, my counsel, I certainly, I couldn't remain a neutral on it. I'd, Simon, I'd sat with at the European Championships in Munich. I went to talk to the Ukraine team because they were under, you know, the war had started. And when I walked in to speak to them, the head coach came over to me and said, by the way, there's a girl in that group whose mother died four hours ago in a mm. tower block. I couldn't be neutral. But it, but it feels, I mean, listen, I understand and 185. That. And it would have been the same. 185 of them lost their lives. But it would have been the same in 1980, wouldn't it, in some respects? I mean, it feels to me there's like an element, a touch of hypocrisy here because as the runner that you are in 1980 you're a runner and you're rejecting a political agenda yet in 2023 you're a runner that is an administrator that's now enforcing a political agenda 
I don't think we were enforcing a political agenda. Some might look at it that way. We looked at this very much as the integrity of the competition. Could I, could we as a council sit there and say we would give to Russia and Belarus the panoply of service and world championship environment when the country that had been invaded weren't able to compete properly, didn't have infrastructure, had athletes having to compete yeah, out of the country, yeah, I understand that. had male coaches mm -hmm. who were on the front, 185 male athletes have lost their lives defending their country. Look, yes, have we set a precedent? Yes, we have. And I have to accept that. I'm not really very good at the what about argument. I think you have to deal with what is in front of you. And yeah, yeah we, I agree there that are what about is a low in... form of conversation, but it is also relevant at times. Yeah, it is. Because we have to have consistency. You can't, what about, if, you, if, you, if I allow you to have that observation, it enables you to get away from your core principles of what you believed once. I know that what's the purpose of a mind if you can't change it, right? But your fundamentals were a certain view as an athlete. And if you were an athlete now, a Belarusian, how would you be sat in these circumstances? Well, look, I have been through that in a different era. I chose not to go to South Africa. Right. I chose not to go to South Africa for the very simple reason that I knew that if I went, I wouldn't be competing against the best that they had available in the apartheid years. I also have Indian background. So I'd have rather face the wrath of Margaret Thatcher than the wrath of my mother or <laughs> my, my Indian family. And look, the, the, the challenge for us uh, was, was a clear one. Uh, and yeah, this, is, these, this, was a tough, these, this was a tough decision. This was not an easy decision. And as I said, we, we really did take this uh, on the integrity of the sport. We've got a, a working group that look, will be a look at what might need to happen in order to have Russia and Belarus back in the mm. fold. It's not a situ It's not a position I, I want to have sustained for ad infinitum. Ad infinitum, but it is important. I think it's important for our sport that we took a stand, and that's that's the judgment that we made. And they're never easy. And yes, there are precedents. And yes, you will always get confronted with the the what ifs. Why did you take so long to deal with the transgender issue? We didn't actually. Um, transgender is not a, you know, we, we, there are two very separate issues in our sport and I don't want to get into the scientific weeds here. We have something called DSD, which is differences of sexual development. It's mm -hmm. when, uh, it, it's when um, a female is born a biological male that we've been dealing with for a long time. That often gets conflated with the transgender issue. If you and I had been sitting here even two years ago, we would not have been having a discussion about transgender in sport. It's a relatively new issue. But it's loud. And, and, you know, and, and people have, the lead hasn't been taken. I think, who was it who took the lead first? Was it Fila took the lead first in the swimming association? No, no, in America? We, we actually did the, we, we took the lead in that space by introducing our DSD regulations. We then realised that we needed to look at the uh, the transgender issue. But it's Sud a clear issue, Seb, isn't it? Transgender. I mean, ultimately, for me, um, and I know this is you have to walk this tightrope with the viewpoint that sometimes you can fall off it and strangle yourself with the tightrope. But but biological males and biological females. Yeah, but Simon, I wasn't going to chase weeks over this by making a decision or a judgment that wasn't absolutely supportable by the science. I had to follow the science. And Biology science, though, isn't it? It's a fact, isn't it? Well, yeah, of, of course it is. But but the the other the other potential was: is there something? Are there hormone suppressants that you could introduce into the medical protocol? And nobody could tell me that by having a suppressant in transgender that you could close that gap in one year, two years, five years that the residual impact, and that's when I went, right, this is when well, we made the margins of elite, elite sport are the margin. Any material advantage in elite sport is a margin. Yeah, but the, the, the issue in, in trans was, was, for me, very clear-cut. The judgment we took was that if an athlete has been, if a male athlete has been through puberty, mm -hmm. then that delta is, is there. Look, I've got daughters. Mm -hmm. I can remember them 
kicking the butts of their brothers and when they were running in school sports 10 12 they were you know they were winning the second puberty kicks in that delta opens and of course so for me this the the decision ultimately was based on one very simple proposition i am elected to protect the female category mm -hmm. and if i don't do that no woman will ever win another sporting event right. what we haven't so but the transgender issue is only it's at elite level i i'm not saying that transgender athletes shouldn't be able to compete at a local level they should be you know we we don't want them to be denied the mental can you see a physical... transgender games no not look no. I, i'm not saying no but what i am saying is at this moment we we've got the position we've got i'm not going to bind the hands of my successors i'm only there for four more years it may be that we have second third categories i mean if you're being realistic about it the third Level category is still a male category really yeah um, and there may be, you know, external events that get organised, but at the moment, the position for us is is very clear cut. Sebastian Co, thank you for being so upfront with me. I've really enjoyed it. So have I. Thank well you. Done. Well done, mate. Thank you. Upfront with me, Simon Jordan, is brought to you by William Hill. Future episodes can be found on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. 18 plus, please gamble responsibly.